Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. Let's get into it. Martin, and I am the host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast, TV host and comedian. You had an amazing career on TV. So why the need to start a podcast? I felt like there was a need for it. I had really hit, hit a big dip in my depression because I had in my brilliance decided to go off my meds. And despite my psychiatrist urging me not to, the depression didn't show up for about five months. So I didn't realize it was a depression. And after I realized it was a depression, went back on my meds and felt better, I thought, man, I, I've been in therapy for years. I've been under the care of a psychiatrist for years. I believe mental illness is a real thing. And I got fooled by it. Somebody needs to talk about this, but in a way that's not kind of condescending and preachy a la Dr. Phil or in a dry academic way, or in a precious new agey way. I thought if, if we could talk about this, like people converse in my support groups, where one minute you're laughing, the next minute you're crying. There's, you know, sometimes inappropriate jokes that just relieve the tension. I thought that would be a good vehicle, because there's nothing like the power of someone's story to really connect and for it to sink in. Like, you know, you may learn facts about depression or this or that, but that's not going to change you. And those are usually forgettable. But yeah, when somebody shares their story, I, I'll remember some of those stories for the rest of my life. And it also takes you on a bit of a journey too, doesn't it? It's not it just does. a matter of, it's like you experience it through them, especially yes. when it's raw and real rather than just kind of filtered out with all the stuff that we're too afraid to say. Yeah. Yeah. And podcasting, I think, is just such the perfect medium for it because it's such an intimate medium and nobody can, you know, having worked in, in television, you see how much control and censorship there is. And yeah. it, it just made podcasting feel like such a great free choice. So, so Paul, that <laughs> question is, you know, people have this big fucking fallacy that somehow if you have a career and especially in this industry where you're this celebrity, somehow things just become easier because you've got more money. Can you just tell all those people to fuck off? <laughs> that was another reason I wanted to start the podcast is I, I because I have friends who are known in the in the public eye. I, I wanted people to know that just because you have money or attention does not mean you aren't struggling with something. Everybody is struggling with something inside themselves. And the externals may vary, but the internals don't vary by that much. There's still self-loathing, self-doubt, self-obsession, fear, anger, sadness, loneliness. Uh, I've, I've never seen someone who has not experienced all of those things to some, to some degree. And as you know, America is so obsessed with celebrity culture and it's so corrosive. So that was one of the things I wanted to 
really kind of poke holes in. So you said that it kind of crept up on you after you get, got off your meds. Yeah, I felt good for about four months. And then around the fifth month, I just started feeling really sad. And I knew something was wrong when a guy in my support group was sharing about hitting a bottom, smoking crack and cutting his neck vein open in his van, the blood spurting out. And he was looking up at God saying, I'm ready for you to take me. And I felt jealous. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's, that's something, a problem. Something, something's wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, it's because I just felt what a messy way to kill yourself. <laughs> oh yeah, I, you, you, the resale value on your van is going to be shit. <laughs> People are going to want to buy that. It's not good real estate. <laughs> no, and that's a terrible thing to do to your family to leave them it with is. a van that's unsellable. You're already leaving them. Got to leave them with something good. Right. What's the blue book on a suicide van? Very little. <laughs> Nobody wants that shit. Let's be honest. No, no. But funnily enough, so I've I've been on medications for years as well. And my story was kind of interesting. I never did drugs ever in my life, actually. So I went to Ann Arbor and Oh, smarty pants. Yeah, I'm way just, smarter just than all three of you. In okay, no, nah, that's not like, true. Literally, I-, I get really angry at Sahil sometimes. Because he can be really annoyingly incompetent. But then he's so brilliant in other things. So it's just one of those things. I think you're either like in some aspects, it's like you're so much smarter. And then and other aspects, and then other aspects you can't even put a fucking key hanger on. But you know why? It's because all my <laughs> life I was fucking told I'm never going to be good at like manly physical things. Uh-huh. You know, the tradie things that people <laughs> do like fucking build What houses? makes a man? Yeah. Like the journal on what makes a man never reached me. <laughs> some, somebody threw it in the bin. <laughs> They were about to hand it to him and they saw a bin and they're like, can't be fuck carrying Well, this. I'm talking about my feelings here to shut <laughs> up. Sorry. So, so Paul, so university, right? And throughout university, I was studying through, because I was doing engineering. I was pretty much super busy. And then I was working on the weekends as well. And for three years for uni, I did not end up doing like anything. Like I was really, really sterile and like made sure I studied hard. And then I went to a music festival. And had uh, Molly for the first time in my life, Molly. and I overdosed, and I <laughs> and it triggered my anxiety, and I was so fucking mad. I was so mad at like God or whoever the fuck is sitting up there. I'm like, dude, I did it once. Do not fucking. <laughs> and then it. there's all these crackheads like constantly, yeah, constantly uh, like totes alive. Yes. And you had not experienced anxiety before that, so I didn't know what anxiety was. Like I used to take a shit every time I had my math exam because I was really worried, but I didn't connected to anxiety that's just common sense oh yeah really <laughs> but i'm indian so i'm supposed to be good at maths is it racist that i have Ind- indian food on the way right now are you actually for real was it good yeah i am for real my girlfriend and i just ordered indian food and it's, it's and on is the it way. because you were thinking about us yeah no not at all i didn't even know you guys were indian but I think subconsciously, uh, yeah, was, that's what I reckon. I reckon it was sub- subconscious. It's the only way I can relate to you guys is through your food. Otherwise, you're just like bizarre. That you is know, fucking racist. Otherworldly creatures. That's, that's just it. yeah. I mean, considering how many fucking doctors we have in your country, yeah, I mean, you it'd be so hard to relate. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. So I could never connect anxiety, and after that, so after overdosing, I I used to have like these mental hallucinations every single day, and I went to work with that. And I was still working 20 hours a Explain day. Explain the hallucinations to you. Oh, yeah. So hallucinations were really weird. I couldn't put a finger on it and I couldn't see it. Anyone else have it, which is the scariest thing about Visually it. Visually or auditorily? Visually. Your visually, hallucinations. Even more yeah. scary. It was like the Matrix or something in his head. Yeah. And in front of my eyes. And nobody yeah. else 
understands it. So it's really frustrating. And you think you're the only one suffering. I bet. You know, you hear all these people having similar stuff to you go, oh, I'm not the only one. And that's a very comforting feeling. <laughs> We're all in this together. And what brought that knowledge about to you? Who shared with you or how did you find out other people experience? Well, I kept on typing yeah. symptoms up in Google until someone said I had something called derealization, which is right. where you feel the world around you is not real. Like you're looking at it through a yes. bottle. So you don't feel in mm -hmm. your body. Yeah. Uh, Janet Varney, a very good friend of mine, my one of my co-hosts from the TV show shares about that. Uh, she's been a guest a couple of times on the podcast. And when she first was sharing what it was like, it was so foreign to me. And then other people wrote in and they were like, yes, yes. And she just happened to have a therapist who had the same thing. She was so relieved to know that she was not alone, as I imagine you were. Yeah. So can you explain derealization to someone like me? Because I don't know what the fuck that is. So it's it's essentially... When you look at the world around you, it's like looking through a glass bottle. It's kind of blurry. It's kind of weird. And things actually move too fast. Like it's like one of those, if you look at your iPhone camera and you go to like slow-mo, you know how it's really jumpy? Everything was really jumpy. Okay. And this was for months afterwards. Actually, two years afterwards, I was still having this every day. And but it would go, just come and go, right? Uh, to the point where I stopped thinking about it. And right. Then, so you yeah. had to just ignore it. Yeah. But okay. you can't ignore it. And yeah. And then you realize you're suffering from this. So this becomes your life and mm. becomes your identity. So I had... How much uh, ecstasy had you taken? So I did some on the first day. Uh, by the way, great drug though. I bet. Only drug you should <laughs> fucking try. Don't encourage this. No, I'm just saying like the, the drug <laughs> itself, it like it was the best time <laughs> I've ever had in my life. I felt like I loved everything. And that's what makes me really shitty because I'm like, I want to experience that every day. Like I looked at a leaf and I was like, I love you, leaf. <laughs> Fucking love you, leaf. The problem with that is you, you, are, you are making a withdrawal from your serotonin bank account and you pay for it. You pay for it. Is that actually what happens? Is that? Yes. It squeezes all the serotonin out of your brain. So then the next day or week or whatever, you experience intense sadness or. Right anhedonia, whatever it might be for that person. That's what I'm told. I've never done Molly. I've done a lot of other drugs, but that's what I'm told. What other drugs have you done? What's your favorite drug? What's your favorite drug? Well, a combination that, that was pretty sweet after I had a hernia operation was Vicodin and weed. I enjoyed that one. Alcohol and weed were my two main ones, but I, you know, acid, mushrooms, opium. God, I even inhaled a uh, computer screen cleaner one time. Yeah, that's dangerous, mate. Uh, I, don't I, don't know, I don't know if people What's have that? said that. What's that? Computer screen cleaner? Like it's just, you know, the air, the compressed air that you, you use to clean. It's oh. got like chemical use to it. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like, yeah. so I like the smell of petrol a lot. Yeah, I do. Yes. I'll be honest. I love, I love that. You go to the petrol station, you're like. <sighs> yeah, but and then I realized my dad loves it too. I think it's common. No, I think it's You just go just sniffing walk to the together. gas station. As a kid, I loved the smell of unleaded or of leaded gasoline, but I don't feel the same way about, about uh, feel unleaded. feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not sure if that's, that's the right <laughs> cocktail for you. But something interesting that you said was, so five months later, you really started feeling, being off your mm. medication. Was there something, and I hate when the common public asks you this question, was that something that triggered it? Was there something that really triggered? Because Except you, that I'm the common population. You are. And you are. The and I want to ask that question. There wasn't. I had thought, because it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that it was just the time of the year. But it was much worse than it had been, even 
when I was drinking, it was, it was worse than that. So I knew something was really bad. But, you know, the thing about depression that's so tough is it, it's a shapeshifter. You know, it tells you, you know, there's no more joy in this thing. And, and that's because you're just ungrateful and you're hard to please. And you're going to be that way the rest of your life. You will never enjoy the sunshine again. Oh, yeah. You will never, yeah. the darkness loves to speak to us in nevers and always and it's very black and white. And that's one of the ways I catch it nowadays when it does come to me. Oh, I'm always going to be lazy. I'm never going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then I usually catch myself and go, okay, that's, that's some illness in me that just wants to yeah. make everything black and white so that I guess I can digest it. I, th- yes. I think there's a part of the brain that really hates nuance. Well, we actually had Brian Robinson. He's a psychotherapist and an author of the book, Hashtag Chill. And he's a writer for Forbes. Yeah. Well. And he's, his focus is, well, he does relationship counseling as a psychotherapist. And then other times he does work-life balance where he talks about how you have to learn to be able to switch off your work and, you know, start up your life type thing. So we had him on and it, it was just amazing because so Sahil and I, we're different in the way that we manage our mental health. Um, and so I've had all, have had this way of doing it for a very long time. So I told Brian Robinson about that and he said that what he calls, you know, my version of what I do is his internal boardroom where he's the CEO and he has all these stakeholders and they're all different things. So one's the fortune teller, one is worry, one is anxiety. And all of them kind of chime in every now and again in different parts of your life. And he said that those things are hardwired into us because Mother Nature, in order for us to protect ourselves from predators and all that sort of stuff, is that we have to have those there. Um, Obviously, life has changed in a way that we don't have those same predators that we may have had in the Stone Age days or, you know, before civilization became what it is. However, the types of predators are now in ourselves and our mental health. And because we don't know how to manage those things in our heads anymore. Yeah, the brain, the... The brain that saved us from the water buffalo also makes us difficult to date. Exactly. I see it in such a different light. You know, we have to talk to these parts of us and rationale with those parts of us in order to actually be able to go, okay, what they're saying, is it, you know, legitimate? Is it actually conducive to what I want to achieve today? And once you kind of have that negotiation, you can manage those better. And I think that's kind of, especially just what you said earlier when you said that, oh, you know, this part of me chimes in and then I catch it. I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of very much in line with, I guess, what Brian Robinson, he was trying and to I think that's I think that's why support groups are ho- so helpful because we will very rarely take our own advice. But yes. when we see it modeled by somebody else, it's very, it can be very attractive uh, to us. And yeah, that is actually really true. That uh, is so true. Paul, um, actually, I do want to make a, uh, a public service announcement here. <laughs> public, all, public service. All the feminists. Is, feminists. Why the fuck is it called Mother Nature? Why not? But then God is, God is a man. I don't care. It's, why is it? Can't they have that? Can't they have that? Oh, come on. <laughs> After What's everything the next thing? we're they going through. Equal pay? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, but, Paul, I actually did want to know um, it's not spoken about a lot is how the thoughts creep in very subtly and how you kind of deal with it for yourself. So, can you explain those couple of minutes that happen? where they're very, very sneaky and how they make you feel and you think, oh, no, no, this is nothing. That's a great question. And it usually, the the Petri dish for that is me experiencing numbness or a lack of 
enthusiasm, a lack of vitality. And so then it steps in to fill the void. Well, this is wrong. That's wrong. You know, that voice doesn't pop into my head when things are going well and I'm excited about woodworking or guitar. The worst it will get when when I'm feeling a sense of vitality is it'll say it's not it's not going to last. You know, don't don't count on this to be here tomorrow. But I gladly will take that over the the other the you know feeling listless and and numb. Yeah. I didn't know that I felt numb most of my life until I didn't feel numb, and I went, "Oh, this is this is why other people sing. This is why <laughs> people laugh. Yeah, this is why families enjoy each other's company." You know, when did you really start to realize that you have got depression? Like you know, when did you time? get? Uh, around 1999, my depression was just getting worse. Uh, my drinking was getting worse. Uh, Sometimes when I would be sleeping at night, I would have auditory hallucinations. I would hear people in the backyard calling my name. I was really sad. I was really angry. And I was thinking about suicide probably, you know, 20 times a day. And I went and uh, saw a psychiatrist and she asked me what's going on. And I just kind of vomited everything that's going on. <laughs> and she actually rolled her eyes like, oh, boy. Uh, yeah, and okay. never which, which, which kind of incredibly unprofessional. I yeah, eventually like, found yeah, another. There, there is a lot of judgment still about it. And yeah. that's like the first sign that would make me so fucking uncomfortable. But it's actually stupid like why are you in this profession if this is how you're going to behave well you know i i think it's a great example of that that was who was in network for my health insurance oh, and right. that's sadly often the choice is you get the bottom of the barrel so a lot of people because, won't know paul especially in australia what what in network and out of network means to just make it realistic about how lucky we are in australia like yeah. with free healthcare. Can you explain what that means in and out of network? Yes. Your insurance will only pay for certain doctors, uh, doctors that have said, yes, well, I'll work for you. I'll accept payments from you. I'll keep my prices in this price range. And they're usually doctors that don't have a full schedule. And so they would rather take minimal money than be not making any money during okay. that hour or so. So yeah. if you want to pay for someone out of network, your health insurance will usually only cover about half of the cost. Right. I actually haven't even submitted for years uh, my psychiatrist appointments to my medical insurance because they will pay for so little of it because he's out of network that I'm like, you know what? I would rather just keep my privacy than have my issues given to them, to this yeah. insurance company for a paltry sum. But yeah, we're number one. We're number one. <laughs> I just want to imagine being, being a person <laughs> who's, who's suffering from this. And yeah. then on top of that, this is something to worry about. I have many, many friends who are in that place where they have to go to the county health care system and wait in line for nine hours to be told to come back in two weeks. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. The wealthiest nation on earth. And we... Yeah, no, it actually doesn't make sense to me. I think that, I mean, look, we're lucky. Canada's got the same as Australia. Yeah, so Australia and Canada kind of got the similar thing. Yeah. You know, I know I know that in third world countries they have that, but I just find it really, you know, how you how backwards could you possibly be in the USA to be not providing the people that you're talking about, yeah, we're the number one country in the world. It's just it's it's jaw dropping. It is jaw dropping. And not only that, but it's for profit. Mm. That you are allowing people yep. to profit 
profit off of people's sickness. Yeah. Well, it's actually, that kind of brings me back to, you know, there, there are higher levels of mental health illnesses in those places because it's like, it's worse, I think, if you've got everything or you can have everything except the one thing you don't have is your health taken seriously, I guess, almost. In third world countries, it's kind of like, okay, well, it's hard enough as it is with every single thing that that's almost like not even a priority. But yeah, and look, that being said, like in third world countries, people are just realizing that mental health is a thing. Yeah, when you're starving, you don't really think about, you know, I'm kind of emotionally overwhelmed by my father. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I need to set some boundaries with the... <laughs> with the warlord because uh, he's very offensive. Yeah, I'm going to have my head cut off, but you know what? My emotional health, though. There is such a weight to fearing cancer bankrupting you. The the mental weight of that being a reality. It'll make it worse. Oh, way worse. It'll way kill worse. you sooner. Yeah. I mean, when I imagine what it would be like if, if we had universal health care, I can feel a weight falling off of my shoulders. Yeah. Because one of my concerns is, what if I don't have enough money to retire? What if I can't afford decent health insurance? Uh, you know, maybe is is Medicare going to be there for me after I'm 65? I I have no idea. You know, our country is what trillions of dollars in debt. That bill is going to come due someday, and who's going to pay for that? And that's what I really want. There's some people I meet in Australia, and they really fucking piss me off because they're like, oh, I don't have my appointment with the psychiatrist for two weeks. I'm like, dude, you're getting covered. Oh, I don't like the Medicare. Like, I should be getting. Oh, there's so much entitlement here. There's so entitlement. <laughs> but is entitlement everywhere, really, in different aspects? Yeah, but I think, like, healthcare, I think if your healthcare <laughs> yeah, this is, is a privilege. Care of, this is a that's privilege. That's a big privilege. Yeah. yeah. And you won't realize it until you are. The paperwork alone is enough to depress you. And yeah in our health industry. Every time you go to see a doctor, you've got to fill out an entire history. There's nine pages to check off and to sign oh, and legal things that you won't sue them, that if you do, the court case will be in this state and you give up your right to this. My girlfriend, who's from Ecuador, is just like, God, when, back home, I just walk in, I, I get treated and I walk out. And there are things about America that my girlfriend has kind of woken me up to that I didn't realize that she is envious of. She lost her, was it her wallet or her phone? And she she said this, not me. She said in Latin America, you would not get it back. There is a feeling that there's so much corruption that if you get a chance to get one over on somebody, you just do it. Do it. And she said in America, people will return or at least there's a chance that your wallet or your phone is going to get returned to you That's and that that too. blew my mind yeah yeah like yeah if it happened in India I'm not expecting oh no there's no way if in India bother. someone returns something you're like really are you yeah. sure are you sure? What have you done to it? I'll give it to you. We just watched, uh, speaking of India, we just watched White Tiger last night. Oh my God, it's so good. It's so good. The writing, acting, directing, everything about it. And it's morally ambiguous, which I love. I love movies where the characters are really complex. and Yes, because it's, it's reality, right? Like we always pretend yes. that, you know, everyone who's even 
good is perfect, but really there's so many imperfections. Yes. It's like, I think, so, I think intellectually we enjoy stuff that's vague. I guess we, maybe we enjoy it emotionally too, but I know when I feel like my brain has to keep moving when I'm watching something, that makes it really enjoyable. But when I feel like I'm two steps ahead of what's happening, because you know that you could just sense in the first 10, 10 minutes that this is going to be predictable. There's going to be a happy ending. Everything's going to get tied up. And I'm just so sick of that. That's one of the reasons why I love movies from the 70s. There was such a cynicism here after Watergate and the Vietnam War that it was reflected with movies that had endings that weren't happy. And it felt like, oh, okay, I'm not alone in feeling alienated and disappointed by people in charge. Well, I actually want to go back to your story, but before I do, because you were talking about movies and all that sort of stuff, I was, I don't know what I was listening to. I can't even remember. You we were talking about have really good specific uh, context. Yeah, I'm very particular for, about everything yeah, I say. You start just a story. So you know, yep. Should be a great comic. <laughs> So this happened somewhere, whatever, fuck it, doesn't <laughs> No, but so I heard that, you know, we all have this sort of idea on, you know, what life should be like. And it's and we're d- more disappointed when it doesn't work out, but it's mostly dictated by all the happy endings that we kind of see yep. in movies. And I think that that's what's exacerbating our mental health as well. You know, I think that that, that expectation that life will always go according to plan or life should always be a happy ending or life should always, it'll have its turbulences and... It'll have all of that, but you will get a happy ending. Some people kind of go, oh, I don't want to watch this movie. It's too depressing. You know, can we watch just a chick flick? And it's like... That's you. I only watch chick flicks. That's you most when, of the time. No, but... That is literally you. But are you going to let me rationale? The reason I do that is because when I've had a big day and I've mentally exhausted myself, all I want to do is be brain dead and not think. So I'd rather just sit there and watch something that's just going to take me and be like, but yeah. But that, that for me is a fucking problem by itself. And tell me tell me if I'm on the right track, Paul. <laughs> Can you say it first? You're on the right track? <laughs> you're, you're on the right track. Oh, all right, let's go. Um, that your job... Is so mentally exhausting that you come back and go, fuck, I need to tune out of this. I that know. is fucked. That is fucked. I, mean, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I think everybody has their happy space, the place where they can just kind of relax and turn their brain off. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it, you know, maybe it's UFC fighting or a movie like Dumb and Dumber that's not an intellectually great yeah. movie, but is just so fucking funny because because it's silly a movie like Jackass I mean I love I get a sense of comfort from movies <laughs> like that but to me chick flicks are I, I think in a lot of ways they're emotional porn because they yeah. portray such an unrealistic version of uh, what a man what a man is um, <laughs> yeah. that 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 guy doesn't exist just like the woman in the, the porn doesn't exist. A hundred percent. That's why she expects me to put a key holder up and I'm not that guy. <laughs> I can't do it. But can I make I, you I happy for the rest okay. of your life? Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't that more important, Paul? <laughs> it is. Paul, uh, there's this something about comedians that I find. They've got such a profound way of thinking. Like, I mean, sometimes I listen to Jim Carrey. I don't know if you have... Jim uh, Carrey, yeah. yeah. He's a very deep thinker. Oh, he's, he's, yeah. But I know that he has massive amount of demons that he fights with every single day yeah i i I would say bulk comedians would (laughs) like i was gonna say i've never met somebody who's really funny that had a happy childhood yeah never you know the fact that we actually use comedy to throw some really important messages out there it it is 
important, but I, I find it funny that we have to now soften the blow a bit by laughing about it. Well, we have to now because there's fucking cancel culture everywhere. If you say the truth, it's sensitive. That's true. It's going to be really interesting to see how this comes out the other side. You know, I think it's everything's in a state of flux right now. And I think cancel culture was the best that we could have hoped for, given the fact that people had been reporting sexual harassment for decades and yep. were not listened to. In fact, were even persecuted for, for doing that. So what was it going to take? This, turns out, was what it had to take for this to yeah. happen. But is it sustainable? I don't think so. I hope something more nuanced and I don't know. It feels like everything is kind of being dealt with with a big sledgehammer right now, which is better than how it was pre-Me Too. Mm -hmm. But my hope is it can still evolve into something that allows for nuance and gray areas. Yeah, and it's a little bit more sustainable as well. Um, so let's let's go back before we do actually drift off to another because we do tangents all the time. But I just want to go back to your story. So you said that you went to um, a psychologist? Yes, uh, psychi psychiatrist. psychiatrist. She rolled her eyes. Yes. And uh, she put me on meds and I started feeling a bit better. But eventually in 2003, I had to quit drinking so the meds could, could really work. And that was the, the thing that, that changed everything. That was the me seeing the matrix, me seeing that the common denominator in my misery was me drinking, my selfishness, my fear, my anger. And as I began to see that more clearly and look at the world and myself and other people differently with more compassion and trying to be of service and here and there when I when I could, uh, my spirit lifted and I realized, oh, there's a spiritual element to life that I had completely ignored because I was just so selfish. And, you know, I think a lot of people who have demons and, and are in pain you're in survival mode. You're you're selfish so you because are more selfish. Yeah, because you you just want the pain to end, and yeah. it never occurs to you that getting out of yourself and being of service to somebody or being vulnerable is the answer. Because that seems like the last thing in the world that would help you. You've just hit the nail on the head with that. But I had to learn that. I would have never come to that realization on my own. Absolutely, yeah. It's hard. It is a hard thing because you've got to push yourself to do it as well. And, and I think you have to run out of options. It yeah. has to be the last house on the block. It usually is. But a lot of the time, groups. that's yeah. also not something that crosses a lot of people's mind. You know, I, I don't know. I don't. There are many people that I I know of that that isn't even an option. That's not even up there in the list of things that they should be doing because they're so self-absorbed absorbed at that point. Well, my psychiatrist refused to treat me until I stopped drinking. And so he, he probably saved my life because I would have told myself, man, I don't want to go talk to a bunch of boring people. You know, untreated alcoholic is long on arrogance and short on responsibility. How we look at psychiatrists in like TV and film, like the way they talk mm. is so far away from the truth. And it's someone telling you, hey, I'm not actually going to fucking treat you until you stop alcohol and they kind of take this stand which is really like that's closer to the truth but so, i actually like that he did that because oh, i love it you say my life i'm grateful i tell them all the time thank you thank you for because if you look at the rehab industry it is the opposite of that it is they don't care the insurance for some reason insurance is ready to dole out shitloads of money you know they're they tighten their wallet if you got cancer but if you're you, you relapse for the hundredth time. And not that I don't think rehabs shouldn't be paid for, but there is an industry that preys on people's addictions. Yeah. Alcoholics 
and addicts need consequences for their behavior. Otherwise, you're enabling them. I saw this Vice documentary about this young girl. Uh, she's a DJ and she has a relapse problem of drugs and she ends up going uh, to and she's also doing a documentary for Vice and they go to the most expensive rehab in the world. It's <sighs> in Switzerland. It's about uh, $300,000 a month or something like that. It's, it's some bizarre price. Like really, really bizarre price. And she just goes there every time. No, well, she just went there once to to show people what it is. It's like you have your own butler, you have everything. And well, it's the opposite of what the alcoholic ego needs. It needs exactly. to be smashed. They're just like, yeah. this is perfect. This is a dream. <laughs> yeah, it need you need humbling. Yeah, you need humbling. A million percent with that. So yeah, so you said that you had that sort of change in you, and you started kind of going outside yourself, which was really important. Yes, it's it saved my it saved my life. It gave me a different perspective. Perspective, you know, and just the bottom line fact that I wasn't putting depressants into my body helped me begin yeah. to manage my depression. Uh, my love of woodworking sprang out of getting sober. I suddenly had more vitality and, you know, wasn't just sitting in a chair thinking about yeah. death. What are your thoughts on weed? You know, I think if it's not used as a coping mechanism, it's not it's not an issue. I don't see any problems with it recreationally, but I think sustained use of it can exacerbate depression. I, I don't think many things in moderation are bad. I think when we use them to escape our life is when it begins to become a problem, especially when it begins affecting our life negatively. Are we, you know, missing appointments, not getting our work done, you're shutting down around loved ones. Those are all things to, to look at. Um, something that I was listening to what you were saying and I wanted like listeners to know is especially medication when you start on it. A lot of people think you just take a medication and you become better. And it's it's quite the opposite because you have to find out what medication works specifically mm. for you. Oh, so much trial and error. I, I always tell people the most important thing you can have when you have mental illness is patience because oh. shit doesn't change overnight. It's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, but patience and self-compassion. Treat yourself as if your soul has the flu. You know, yeah. If you had the actual flu, you wouldn't shame yourself for laying down in bed. Well, if you have depression, it's a flu of your brain, your soul, your body, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but yeah. it, your vitality is drained. Does it matter what is draining it? So be kind to yourself. If you're tired, sleep. Mm. Oh, I, I think part of, and I tell Huda this all the time, part of this whole culture now about fucking these people who are motivators, who motivate you, ask you to fucking pick yourself up 4 a.m. in the morning, wake up, take a nice bath. That will make me have a productive day. And suddenly, if you're not doing that, you feel like you're incompetent and even laying down in bed, you feel guilty. And then that exacerbates it on top yeah. of that because then you think, I am a low life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said to my girlfriend the other day, is is it wrong that I dream of Tony Robbins losing his voice? This is literally, oh, I was literally thinking about Tony Robbins in my head. I'm like, maybe Paul knows him. I don't want to say anything bad. But <laughs> it's his homie. <laughs> no. I, I'm glad that he works for some people, but to me, it makes me more depressed. Oh, And, and I also think it, it maybe he touches on this, but I, I just can't imagine him talking about focusing on just being, about having contentment for what we have rather than just pursuing, striving for more. What is the purpose of the more? You know, yeah. more more is okay, but what is the price we pay for more? I know so many people who grew up with a, a workaholic parent who yeah. ha have fucked up attachment issues, who have anxiety trust issues it's yeah it alcoholism and workaholism have a lot of the same effects on 
on children and spouses. And it's we put people on the cover of magazines that are billionaires. But do we ever ask them in the interview, what's your child's three favorite movies? Yeah. Name two of their best friends. When was yeah. the last time you spent all day with your child uninterrupted? I, I watched only one of his motivational videos and he said something along the lines of the bad things that happen to us in our life by people, we learn from those. So we should thank them for teaching us to be the opposite of that. But that they're, okay, so and I agree with that to some extent. Uh, I, I, I do, I do as well. And, yeah. and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that he should shares and teaches that is that are truths and are valuable. I, I don't like how loud he is. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, the thing is, though, like, yes, I, I do agree with that. Um, and I think that really then just comes down to perspective because not everybody has perspective in that aspect. I think that you have to have that in order to be able to be grateful for that because a lot of the time, yeah, okay, you know, we, we are taught how not to be by you know, examples or how to be with good examples. However, there are people that are troubled by those bad examples and then they sort of become that person anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's 100% true. And I guess what Tony Robbins was maybe trying to portray is the fact that we have to have that perspective. I mean, that's just what my taking from that was. And I I just thought that that was kind of maybe the only powerful message yeah, I think that resonates with a lot of people, and and I'm sure there's tons more good stuff that that he shares. Uh, I I just don't like the way it's it's delivered. Oh no, you know, 100%. I I. I just like to see his shoulders slump and him, you know, say, God, I've been so uninspired this last year. I feel like I'm on a treadmill. You know, he just it feels like we're only getting one dimension of a person. And I hate anything that's presented to people. Because every time he's on it, he's literally just fucking smiling and and he's throwing this ball of energy at you. But that's what people love about him. Like, but then that ball, let's be honest, though. Yes, of course. But let's be honest. I'm I know for a sure fact that if people actually saw that you know what people would say the weak side of him if people saw that I don't see it as weakness but if they saw that I could only imagine that there would be fewer people following his well, work I don't know because let's let's take your podcast for example, it'd be a different Paul, like, it'd be a different I think he would gain some people and lose some people yes and I'd yes. rather lose those people <laughs> I think that people go to him because they want to sap some of that energy. Yes. It's like an endorphin hit. Yes. People go to him and aspire to be like him. I think people go there because it's a comfort thing and they know that if they're there, they're going to get some positive vibes and that they will thrive off that shit. I I think it's the the work version of uh, a chick flick. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's what I think it is. And I I think that he banks on it. That's what he's banking on. He's not an idiot. Like he knows. He knows exactly the crew of people he's getting yeah yeah and he he look well he sells his own personal story really well and again like it works for some people as paul said like it really works well for some people and that's great it's just hard to see some people throwing their money away and and that's that's kind of what i wanted to get to paul and i know it's 130 and it's been an hour but has it yeah yeah i do i do need to wrap up the food is uh been here for about 20 minutes and my Sorry, girlfriend's that waiting to eat. You were talking about? It'll be fine in the microwave, all right? Yeah, you can just fucking microwave <laughs> that shit. That's the great thing about um, Indian food. Yeah, it'll still taste as good. <laughs> it is the best leftover food. But yes, one thing I did want to point out is, you know, especially for people who can't really afford therapy or people who can't really afford, like, say, people in America who are out of network and can't find the person who can connect with them, a psychiatrist. What is the solution to that? Like you said, you have like uh, focus groups and you have support groups. So 
how do people find about find out about that and kind of get that help outside uh, google whatever your issue is and and you know put in the word support groups there's a website called in the rooms i can't remember if it's .com or .org but it has a huge huge list of active meetings that you can sit in on um you can show your face or not show your face but that would be a good place to start but i'm a i'm a huge believer in support groups there are also very often local services for your area that are free uh, i forget if it's 411 i think you call in your area 411 or 211 and um you'll find out there may be a free psychiatric uh, place if there is a uh therapy school near you you can very often get very very low or even free counseling from someone who is in training they've been through their schooling but they're just building their hours i saw a person who was working on her hours and she was fantastic and open up to a friend somebody that you know you can trust i always say that the best therapists are usually the people around you yeah and and cut people out of your life that drain you tell you you're too sensitive don't listen million percent there are so many toxic people in our lives and a lot of the time they're only pushing their own thing on on you i have one more question before you go on your merry way mm-hmm. so you you got off the meds are you still off those meds no god no No, okay. I have not so, I have not made that mistake since then. I feel better on them. And and it stabilizes. It stabilizes me. Yeah, my I need them. The only reason I ask is because there is a negative connotation to them and I just wondered you got off them obviously because you were probably like I don't want to be on these anymore. Yeah, I still don't like being on them, but I've surrendered yeah, okay. to the truth that I need them and until something yeah. better comes along, I'm still going to keep trying things, you know. I've tried yeah. doing Chinese herbs, uh, you know, I try yoga, this and that. Turns out I need to do those other things at, usually as well. Support yes. groups, therapy, all of those. It, I know very few people who have a single tool that fixes everything for them. Yeah. Try everything. Try everything. Be patient and nice to yourself and others. Wait until you're in your 30s and try Molly at a concert. That's <laughs> at a, I think at a concert with 18-year-olds and potta potties. Yes. Yes. It, it all comes first full circle. Oh, I'm just tripping at another fucking concert and I remember Paul telling me this. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Yes, thank and you so much. It, it, I love talking to you guys. It was very nice. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, we are really easy enjoyed to talk you. to. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy your Indian food. <laughs> See ya. Okay. 